Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and today we're going to be talking about some beneficial insects, some pollinators, and pollinator strips, and what are those exactly? We're going to be chatting with a couple of soil health champions uh, to really take us through this conversation. One is a soil health podcast veteran. We had him on last March, and we we caught up last year at the Commodity Classic uh, because you had just won an award, Rick Clark. He's from Williamsport, Indiana. He was the 2019 American Soybean Association Conservation Legacy Award winner, and we had the opportunity to catch up there. Rick, it's great to talk to you again. If you wouldn't mind, reintroduce yourself for our, our listeners and uh, tell us a little bit about your operation. Sure. Eric, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, Rick Clark, I am a fifth-generation farmer from West Central Indiana, and the number one priority for me is building soil health. And we will do just about anything to not jeopardize that and to promote soil health. Um, we are on a journey currently of uh, heading our whole farm toward organic status. And we're just a little bit different than, than just your traditional organic. We are trying to, to do this with, uh, with cover crops and no tillage. Very good. Rick, thank you for joining us, and we're going to get into more of, of that here in just a moment. And I also want to welcome in Christian Krupke, and, and Christian is a Purdue University professor of entomology. Christian, welcome to the Soil Health Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about what you do there at Purdue. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I'm happy to be here with you. Um, I have been a professor of entomology at Purdue since 2005, and uh, my position there is, is described as corn and soybean uh, or field crop entomology. And in recent years, probably the last seven or eight years, I've gotten more into areas where corn and soybeans intersect with other insects, other crops. And, and as you know, Indiana is dominated by corn and soybeans, but of course that's not all we grow and that's not all we're interested in. Uh, and that's where the pollinator uh, component comes in. Because what we like to investigate is how what we do in corn and soybeans affects pollinators and then in turn affects other crops, crops that are dependent on pollinators for uh, fruit set and yield. Things like um, melons, all our melons, for example, uh, a wide variety of fruits and vegetable crops. So that's I, th I think that's how I got connected with Rick. And I was at a field day at his farm last year. Um, I believe it was in May of last year of 2019. Very impressive to see what he's got going and all the innovative approaches that he's uh, embracing to move into a different direction. And I've talked to many farmers, many producers that are interested in these approaches. This is something that has momentum behind it. So my role, as I see it uh, as a professor at Purdue, as somebody who does research, is to try to figure out what works and what doesn't. With anything new, there are a lot of 
approaches that are kind of maybe not rooted in strong data, maybe more rooted in anecdotal evidence or anecdata, as we sometimes call it, uh, where people saw something, but they're not really, it wasn't really measured or quantified in any way. So what I try to do is measure and quantify some of these things. Why are you seeing uh, greener uh, stands? Why are you seeing more beneficial insects? Or are you actually seeing more beneficial insects? Or is that just uh, because of how you're looking for them? So that's where I kind of come in is to try to document some of these changes and figure out some of the mechanisms behind some of the improvements or sometimes some of the, some of the challenges we see when we move to uh, organic cropping systems and, and systems that are not the conventional corn soybean. Well, thank you for joining us today, Christian. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to kind of diving in here because it sounds like, Rick, you're doing some some interesting things with this, maybe some things that, that other folks aren't. But first, I want to start, Christian, if, if you could just talk, you know, we, we've mentioned the word uh, or the words beneficial insects here a couple of times. Just for folks that, that maybe don't know, what, what types of insects are we talking about specifically? Well, uh, for, for most people, beneficial insects would be those where you can draw a short, straight line between what they do and something that we as humans would benefit from. Uh, so pollinators are the easiest one. Uh, many plants, many flowering plants need to have an insect visit in order to set fruit or a nut or anything like that. They need to have that insect go there and transfer pollen from the male parts of the plant to the female. So in a world without insects, they wouldn't be pollinated and we wouldn't have the vast majority of the fruits, vegetables, and nuts that we all like to eat or that almost all of us like to eat. Um, so that's the, the best and clearest example. Uh, the other examples, many of them fall under the category of predators and parasites. And so these are insects that eat insects that we decide are pests. So uh, when you think of the caterpillars in your gardens, many of those same caterpillars affect uh, crops. There are a wide range of um, beetles, of parasitic wasps, of um, lace wings, of spiders, which aren't insects, of course, that feed on all of those, um, that feed on all of those pests. Having said all that, for me and for most entomologists and ecologists, we can find a beneficial role for almost any insect because they're all part of the ecology of how things fit together. And just because we haven't been able to draw that short straight line doesn't mean they're not important. If you think of it as a kind of like a house of cards where every card is, is critical, not just the cards in the corner or not just the ones that are facing you. If you pull out one of those cards, that will fall. And that's how I look at all the insect species. So when you think of beneficial insects, I would encourage people to think more broadly than the ones that we all know, like ladybugs, pollinators, uh, ground beetles, all of these things that we, that we think um, we want to have in our garden. There are many, many more that don't have even uh, common names and that may look really unpleasant and not very charismatic and cute like a bee, but they are beneficial. And I think we're going to talk about some of those today. Rick, let's talk a little bit about what it is you're doing on your farm. These pollinator strips, they're, they're meant to kind of attract some of these so that you do have more of them out there. But you're doing it in a way that's maybe a little bit different than other people have done pollinator strips. Talk a little bit about what you're doing out there. Yeah, uh, what we're trying to do, and, and 
we're doing this on a, on a fairly large scale uh, operation here. So the, what got me to this point was we've been non-GMO uh, certified growing crops now for about seven years. And with, within those rules of non-GMO, you need to have buffer areas between your corn crop and your neighbor's corn crop because of cross-contamination con of pollen. So I got the idea, well, you know, if I need to have a buffer area between my neighbors, how about we put something there that will, that will help in our system of working with Mother Nature? And that's where I came up with the idea of these pollinator strips. Now, the downside to what we're doing here on what I've came up with is these are almost all annuals. So they're going to do their thing this summer uh, and bloom and, and help with everything that, that, that Christian has already referred to. And then we're going to pretty much lose that coming into the next year. But that's okay because we, we're moving our crops throughout our farm and I need to move these pollinator strips with it. Now, we've gone way beyond this. We are now applying these pollinator strips in, in certain parts of the farm and trying to, let's say, let's say we've got 500 acres clustered in, in this northeast quadrant of the farm. Well, we'll put a pollinator strip up that will try to service those acres, and then we'll move these around the farm. And at home... I actually have a four-acre plot that's, that's being turned into a natural habitat. So I'm trying to get back all of those natural native species that, that were here uh, 150 years ago and, and trying to work as close with Mother Nature as we possibly can. So from what I understand, Rick, a lot of folks, they, they just try to put these pollinator strips kind of around their fields, and it sounds like you're doing it within your fields to try to maximize this. Talk about what it is that's in those pollinator strips. What is actually attracting those those uh, insects? Yeah, the species that we're using. Um, again, I've been doing this a long time. I, I, I don't understand everything. I'm way from understanding everything. But the more we can do these things, the, the more we can see what the, the cause and effect is. And, and I was sitting down one night uh, watching TV, and it just came to me, and I just started writing this stuff down. It's, 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 it's on the Internet. Um, it's going to be posted on my social media sites. Uh, I have uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and they're all... Uh, three, the same handle. It's Farm Green 13. And uh, I buy all of my seed through uh, the Cisco Seed Company in Indianapolis. And they have this same thing. It's, I call it Pollinator Palooza. It's two pounds of Balanza Fixation Clover, two pounds of Burstein Frosty Clover, three pounds of buckwheat, one pound of chickpea, one pound of common vetch, one pound of flax, one pound of crimson clover, one pound of phacelia. Uh, two pounds of rapeseed, two sunflower, one pound of 4010 peas, two pounds of sun hemp, one pound of radish, one pound of lentils, two yellow mustard, two yellow sweet clover, and five pounds of haywire oats. Now, the haywire oats are in there just simply trying to hold some weeds at bay because this, 
this uh, cocktail, as you will, uh, it, it's growing in, in variations throughout the season. That's what's so uh, crazy about when I sat down to do this. If you can get this planted in the 1st of May in the region that I'm in right here in West Central Indiana, you can have a bloom running from June clear through September. And you're going to end up with your sun hemp and your sunflower being your last things. And it just is a wonderful, wonderful uh, platform to have a community of, of all of these beneficial species. And, and one I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it's all about soil health for me. I am proud to say that in 2020, this farm will be chemical-free, fertilizer-free. There'll be nothing added to this farm since 1964. And I'm very proud to say that. And, and when, when you do what we're trying to do with crop rotations, diversity of cover crops, no-till, and now bring in these pollinator strips, we are constantly trying to head toward what I call balance. And, and Christian already touched on this. We're trying to get to balance of predator to prey and bacteria to fungi. And once we can get headed in these directions, that's why we no longer need the attributes of fertilizer and insecticides and pesticides and all these other things. I mean, you know, if, if you get an army worm infestation uh, in your crop and you go out and spray a pyrethroid to target that army worm, you're going to kill thousands of beneficials with that one pass spray. I will not do that. It's just that simple. You're listening to the Hat Soil Health podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. Find out more about their programs at ccsin.org. I do again want to mention Rick's uh, social media feeds. He's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Farm Green 13 and that's where you can find some of this information that he's talking about. And, you know, you, you mentioned not spraying anything, and I do just want to take it back to this because it's a question we get a lot about these soil health practices and the, the, the profitability of them. And you and I spoke about this in the last time we, we talked about this podcast. Uh, you've, you, you may not be uh, pulling in these monster yields like some other people are, but you know where you can make a profit. And, and the profitability with this, it's just uh, incredible, the system you've worked out here uh, to do this, Rick. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's really amazing. Um, I am, uh, it's a journey. This whole, this whole, the whole life is a journey. And as we're moving through this journey, I have found out that I would rather uh, build soil health and, and build my ROI, my return on investment bottom line than I would to chase yield. I, in my opinion, you're always going to come out better on the other end if you do not chase yield. And, and you are correct, Eric. We have slashed input prices. I mean, we strive to be a low-cost input producer with yields that are either maintaining or increasing. And, and, and by the way, that's my definition of soil health. If your inputs are going down and your yields are still rising, how can you not be building soil health? And 
it's so many things that that go into this system it takes patience it takes time it takes years to see these 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 effects and i am so pleased that that a gentleman like like christian is on board with what we're doing and he's at a major university and that is so important for getting this word out you've not only got the academia behind this but now you've got the the farmers behind this so it's really gaining traction and and i really like the direction where it's all headed now christian we're we're talking about all, all of this stuff that he's putting in these pollinator strips you know with that you know obviously he's trying to attract some of these beneficial insects but doesn't he also have to worry about increased pest pressure as well uh, not necessarily, not necessarily. So what we find when you talk about pollinator strips or, or um, prairie strips, they're also called, any kind of diverse mix of plants that you put out there uh, in, in uh, concert with or in rotation with your main crop is that it's important to remember two things. The first one is if you don't change anything else on the farm, in other words, if you continue to use your same uh, pesticide fertilizer regime as you always have, you won't realize the benefits because now you're attracting things like pollinators and beneficial insects into plants that are adjacent to and affected by all of these pesticides that is, is a negative, is a stressor for them. Uh, if it doesn't have mortality uh, consequences, it certainly has sublethal effects on them. So you have to think of this as more than just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to install a pollinator strip, there'll be bees and everything will be great. Because a lot of the pesticides that we use move in the water and are persistent in soil. So they'll get taken up by these flowering plants and they'll be in that pollen and nectar and leaf tissue that all these beneficials are there to use and to feed upon. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing um, is that the, the question that you first started with of the pest pressure, you will, no question, you will attract a lot of different insects in when you plant a mix like Rick mentioned or any diverse mix. But the key in that is the diversity of the mixture. So you will attract some pests. You'll also attract uh, predators of those pests, insects and spiders that feed upon them. Um, and the analogy that I make is when you walk through um, you know, a, a, a state park or a national park or a forest, you don't see massive outbreaks of insect pests generally. You, you do occasionally, but very seldom. And that's because there's a diversity of plants, of animals, and these things, no, no insect, no species has a chance to get a foothold and take off because of that diversity. But if you planted 100 acres of oak trees and you let nothing else survive there, you have a whole bunch of insects that feed upon oak and are specialists and can survive there because none of their predators are there. There's nothing there to affect them. So what we've seen is that while you do attract some insects that are not what we would call beneficial and some that are pests, you just don't have enough of any one thing to pull in enough of those pests to get for them to get a foothold and then to migrate out into the corn or into the soybeans and, and cause big problems. They just can't, they can't get rolling. There's not sufficient uh, monoculture, there's not enough of any one thing, whether it's a pollinator-friendly uh, plant or, or a grass or forbs or whatever, there's not enough of any one thing for that to happen. 
that kind of, those kind of outbreaks are extremely rare in nature. And we see them in, in our monocultures because of the way we're, we're planting those crops. We're planting them in a way that um, inhibits everything except insects that are specialized to work in that system, maybe resistant to pesticides, maybe resistant to BT, corn in some cases, and that can survive there. And anytime you diversify, you set up a bunch of roadblocks for any species to get rolling in that way. Yeah, and, and I want to I interject something there. Christian is making an excellent point on what happens when farmers try these things out and, and their soil's not prepared and they go to the effort in the fall and they do these things or in the spring and they say, well, you see, it didn't work again. I'm done trying that. But they don't understand what is happening to lead them to the 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 not the result that they're looking for so when you now step back into the system that we're working on um we have eliminated synthetic fertilizers now the the p and k it's been we're heading into year six um this year will be the first year we're going to totally eliminate all nitrogen as uh, that's synthetic and once you get back to Mother Nature, get back to this diversity that Christian's talking about, and then the crop rotations, I mean, we've got we've got five or six crop rotations here now. Most of our neighbors have two, corn and soybeans. We've got corn, beans, wheat, alfalfa, peas, and, and a regen, what I call regen slash grazing. So now we're taking those acres that we're grazing livestock on and we're now throwing a warm season cocktail into those acres that we typically can't do in this region and then we're building that 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 system to then be ready for corn that following year so there's so many things that are going on and christian touched on that perfectly that if you don't go in with the mindset of, of, of taking away some of these, these um, attributes that are affecting what you're trying to do, you're never going to get over the hump on getting these things established. One thing, Rick uh, and Eric, that I would stress is that anybody listening that's thinking of doing this, and, and I think we've sort of covered that if it's taking you decades to get your soil to the point where it is in terms of, you know, input, input is standard inputs of fertilizer and pesticides. You can't expect the results to come all the way full circle back around in a year or two. So I would stress that number one, the patients, which Rick also said, but if you can link up with somebody like Rick, who's done it and is doing it, I think that's worth its weight in gold. He has a lot more uh, credibility, experience than any university professor ever would on actually walking the walk in terms of, you know, earning a livelihood doing this. And our university trials are, are often criticized um, by registrants and by, uh, by uh, ag chem dealers and so on for saying, you know, it's a small plot, it's a university research, it's not representative. And some of those shots are fair. Um, but what we're after is looking at mechanisms and how this works on a sometimes even a plant by plant level. But if you can pair up with somebody who's a farmer and who's doing it and is seeing the yields and is seeing the changes on tens or hundreds of acres, 
that's worth its weight in gold. So I think you need to have both. You need to have people working on the mechanism side to figure out what's real, how is this working? And on the other side, um, how does a pencil out? And how do I overcome the hurdles that I know that I know are going to come? Right. Yeah, that, that's excellent. Excellent advice. And, you know, one more thing that I want to throw in here is um, I believe I'd have to go back to my notes to get exact numbers. But I think this year we planted 35 acres of these pollinator strips, 35 acres. And a lot of people say, well, I can't I can't take any acres out of production because I can't afford to have those acres not generating income. But there's other ways that those acres are generating the income. Think what these beneficials have, are going to do for your next cash crop. I've got a picture online, Eric, that, that I've taken a picture um, of an alfalfa field. And where I had the bin and where, where, where Christian came last year and walked through our pollinator strips, it's exactly 36 feet wide. That's the width of our air seeder. The alfalfa that we established last fall after that pollinator strip was terminated, the alfalfa this spring has gone through two frosts after it warmed up this spring. And where the pollinator strip was, the alfalfa is green, healthy, and growing. And right to the line, the alfalfa is yellow and looks like it's dying outside of where that pollinator strip was. That right there is a validation that I'm always looking for. I don't need, uh, you know, a professor to tell me anything, what's going on there. I can see that validation that that biology that was going on there now due to those pollinators is, is, is there's nothing I can put on it. it. It's incredible what it is going to do for the next year's cash crop. That's Rick Clark, farmer from Williamsport, Indiana, and 2019 American Soybean Association Conservation Legacy Award winner. And and Rick, I, I know I can hear your passion. I've seen your passion in talking about this. And it sounds like going back to a point that Christian made, Christian Krupke, Purdue University professor of entomology, also on the podcast today, uh, going back to a point he made about reaching out to someone like you, Rick, uh, what I've found in doing this podcast and speaking to folks like you you would you would absolutely welcome someone giving you a call and saying, "Hey, I'd like to talk about this. Can you give me some insight?" Um, and it sounds like you and other soil health champions across the state are all for that. Totally agree. It happens every day, Eric. I get phone calls, emails, something. Uh, someone's got a question. They just need a little. They need someone on the other end of the of the line to give them comfort. You know, hey, I'm looking at four foot tall cereal rye. What in the world am I going to do with this now? And uh, after a five minute conversation, things are usually calmed down and they're like, oh, OK, we can do this. Yes, I I would love to to help people. Christian, I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, you've been out to Rick's farm, obviously, and uh, I, I understand you want to talk about pitfall traps and i don't know what those are so i'm hoping you can explain to me what they are and and what uh i guess what you get out of them sure um one of the things that uh one of the reasons that pollinator strips prairie strips are interesting uh to producers and, and i'll include cover crops in there as well 
is because we know that they support and promote and attract in some cases a better assemblage of uh, beneficial insects. That includes predators, parasites, um, decomposers of organic matter. Uh, and we, we need to know if that's working. On some basic level, I think every producer who spends time and money and takes land out of corn or soybean production and devotes it to some of these other things wants to know what's going on there. There's a, there's a natural curiosity. And one of the best and simplest, most direct ways to do that is with what you referred to, which are pitfall traps. And what those are, uh, and you can, uh, anybody listening at home can, can Google this, and there are some available uh, for sale commercially, but you can easily make one. And so what it is, is, is you imagine just a coffee can, um, a regular, and coffee always used to come in cans before it came in bags, but um, any kind of can like that, about that volume, and you dig a hole to, to large enough for that coffee can to sit in, um, it's better if the container is, is kind of deep, uh, like a coffee can is. And then you, you put that container in the hole, level, flush with the soil ground level, and put just a little bit of water in there. Uh, you can also use antifreeze, but you have to make sure to use the pet-friendly antifreeze, um, which they sell at anywhere, at Walmart or anywhere. And a little bit of antifreeze, uh, a little bit of water, and just a drop of dish soap. And the dish soap will break the surface tension. And then into the top, top of that can, you just put a funnel. And so what this is now, if you can picture it, is any insect walking along the ground that comes across that little funnel will slide down the funnel into that liquid at the bottom, and it'll drown there. It'll break the surface tension, and it'll drown, and you can come back and count what's there later on. And so these are used by researchers all over the world to measure what insects are crawling around um, in their fields, usually at night. Most of these insects are nocturnal, uh, and many of them are predators. And if you set up a simple uh, grid of these pitfall traps where you can compare in your field, um, uh, in, your, in your area of interest where you have pollinator strips or what have you, versus the main crop, which might just be corn, and you can set that up, especially in uh, late April or May, starting just before you plant the crop or right after it's planted. You'd be amazed at the data that you can get out of that. And you don't have to be an entomologist to sort out these insects. You can see these big black beetles. Well, those are ground beetles. All they eat are other insects, preferably soft-bodied insects like caterpillars. Um, well, not just insects. They eat, they eat all sorts of um, other animals too. But anything they can choke down. And they're one of our main beneficials. And so this is one of the things we encourage people to do so that they can see for themselves what might be going on out there. It doesn't have to be uh, research. It doesn't have to be something where, where we would say, okay, we can publish this in a journal or whatever, but it still has value because people can then go to their farm and look side by side at what's happening. And Rick had some of these set up last year and we went out there and we were comparing one of these pollinator strips with an area that was just, uh, I think it was soybeans at the time, or had been soybeans the year before. And it was night and day difference. We had hundreds in the pollinator strips, hundreds of ground beetles, versus just a handful. 
maybe 10 or 12 or something in the, in the other side, in the, in the equivalent number of traps, on average, in the equivalent number of traps on the other side. So that's a very simple way to see what's going on out there and to familiarize yourself with what these insects look like. If you want to get further into it, uh, you can, you're welcome to call me, uh, reach out to your extension educator and figure out, okay, what are these insects? I see a lot of these big brown ones. I don't know what they are. Uh, things like that, you, you might need some help and to reach out. And that's uh, what I'm here for. And your extension educator usually can help too. But the point is that this is very, very easy to do, uh, very simple to set up. Um, you can get most of these things at the dollar store. You'll have a lot of them laying around. Uh, one, ex one additional thing that I forgot to mention is that you'll want to cover that with something like a, uh, uh, a piece of plywood or uh, uh, an old uh, shingle, roofing shingle, just, and that can just be supported with a couple of rocks. So just so that there's a, there's a cover so that it doesn't rain, uh, so that it doesn't fill up with rainwater. So if you envision this pitfall trap with a funnel in it, then put a small piece of, of shingle, plywood, whatever, over top with a rock on either side to hold it up above ground level, then these insects will be you know, stumbling along. They'll fall into that pitfall trap. It won't overflow with water. Just mark it with a flag as well because there have been more than a few people that have set these up. And then as the crop grows, they forget all about where they find it. They come back a week or a week and a half later and, and they just cannot find it until they... Uh, uh, at the end of the year until they harvest or, or until they go through there and everything has died uh, from the frost. So it's a very simple approach, uh, but it gives you very powerful results. One thing you'll also see in there is a lot of spiders. You will find many, many spiders. You'll be amazed how many spiders you see. What do spiders eat? They only eat other animals, uh, other spiders sometimes, but mainly insects. So if you see that, you know there's more diversity going on in there. And spiders don't cause any problems with crops. We may not like spiders. We certainly don't like them in our houses. But they are, by most definitions, anybody will tell you, one of the key, if not the key predator uh, in agricultural systems. Spiders are uh, doing a lot to keep the populations of pest insects down. So that's, and again, I would encourage people to look this up online. There are a lot of resources at pitfall traps, little diagrams, little DIY sort of guides, um, but all you need is a container like a coffee can, a funnel, something to cover it with, and then a, a little bit of uh, water dish soap and some, uh, some antifreeze. That's all you need. You are listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can find more about their programs at ccsin.org. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and I'm joined today by Rick Clark, Williamsport, Indiana farmer, and also Dr. Christian Krupke, Purdue University Professor of Entomology. And as we wrap things up here, Christian, uh, you know, we've been calling these pollinator strips. And, and yeah, that's kind of what they are. But it sounds like you're, you're getting more out of it than just what you see there with the pollinators. Yeah, that's right, Eric. We, uh, pollinators is, are, are the hook. And that's what we're after. Because they're active in the daytime. We can see them. Most of us like bees. We have positive feelings about bees. Most people recognize the benefits and, and the services they provide to us in terms of the food supply. But when you plant a diverse mix of plants that include uh, a wide range of flowering plants that, that produce pollen and nectar, 
you attract many, many insects that feed on pollen and or nectar uh, that you don't see, that you maybe don't notice. Many of them are um, predatory on pest insects. Many of them are uh, parasites as well. So many parasitic insects as adults don't feed on other insects at all. They feed on nectar and pollen. In fact, most parasitic insects uh, either don't feed at all as adults or feed on um, uh, nectar and pollen that they get from flowers. So you're pulling in a lot more, hundreds and hundreds of insects that you're not even thinking about and aren't pollinators, but nevertheless are important, are in some cases beneficial. So when you think pollinator strips, um, you, can, you can use that as shorthand for uh, pulling in a wide range of insects. You're, you're pulling in a huge species diversity. You're promoting diversity of all sorts of, um, of beneficial insects that can help uh, in ways that we haven't even fully measured yet, but we know there are a lot of them there. Uh, because if you think of a pollinator strip and you, you picture that in your mind and this diverse set of flowers flowering all year, and you compare that to corn or soybeans, which in the case of corn produces no nectar at all, produces pollen, uh, and in the case of soybeans produces only a tiny bit of nectar, have tiny flowers. You can imagine, even if you don't know much about entomology or insects, you can imagine how much more attractive these pollinator strips are to so many and a diverse range uh, of insects that would that would feed in there and that would benefit from it and can in turn then benefit uh, the soil uh, and benefit the, the system overall. So encourage people to think more broadly than just pollinators because that's what we see. That's in the daytime. They're very colorful. There's a lot more going on than that. Now, Eric, I would like to add one thing to that. Um, what we are going to start doing here on the farm, we, we test here all the time. We're testing something all the time. But the next thing we're going to do now is we're going to start incorporating some of these flowering species into our corn crop. For example, we are going to run a test this year. We're going to plant corn and we're going to uh, intercede buckwheat at the same, maybe the same time we plant or maybe a week later. I'm trying to get uh, what would be the equivalent of doing it at V3 or 4, but I don't have that special equipment to run up 20-inch rows to drill it. So we will, we will try to do the, this buckwheat uh, as, a, as a, a broadcast application. And I can't imagine what's going to happen out there in that cornfield. It's just like Christian was just talking about. You know, and we've got all this great stuff going on in this pollinator strip, but it's it's on the perimeter of my field, as I explained, or it's maybe one spot in the middle. What do you think it's going to be like now if we can get a flower across the whole acre? And the nice thing about buckwheat is, is it will winter kill and it'll be terminated then. So um, it's just things like that, that we're constantly trying to figure out how to make this system better uh, working with Mother Nature. And with that, we wrap up the Hat Soil Health podcast. I want to thank both Rick Clark and Dr. Christian Krupke for joining us today. Uh, I can I can hear your passion for this, Rick, and and Christian, you as well. It's it's just uh, great to hear this message of soil health getting out there and uh, the the soil health champion that you are, Rick. It, it's it's refreshing. It's good to hear. So thank you for continuing with that message, and thank you for joining us today on the podcast. You're, you're welcome, Eric, and thank you for continually 
uh, pumping this information out across the airwaves. It needs to be heard often, and and you're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thanks, sir. The Hat Soil Health Podcast is made possible by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can find out more about their programs and a calendar of events at ccsin.org. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. This has been a presentation of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.